Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Michael, please don't see if you can. Toto? Yes, it's called a motor race, okay? Toto, we went to car racing. Last lap controversy strikes again. Niels, have you got a minute? So, Italians... Don't do it better. It's lights out and away we go. It's a good reaction from Charles Leclerc. Into the first corner we go. Charles Leclerc ahead of George Russell. That's Max Verstappen right on the tail of Pierre Gasly in the Alpha Tauri. Then there's a virtual safety car. He's gaining. Is he going to go for it down the inside? Lewis Hamilton is. And before they apply the brakes into that first chicane, Lewis Hamilton is ahead and up into sixth place. Max Verstappen leads once again this race. 2.6 seconds. Mick Schumacher just gives it a little wiggle of the uh, rear. And during that wiggle, forces the Haas past Nicholas Latifi. Danny Ricciardo got a problem. Yes, he has. I lost the engine. Now we are going to get a safety car. We will finish the race behind the safety car. Come on. It's clear. Come on. It's a fifth consecutive win for Max Verstappen. Behind the safety car, he wins the Italian Grand Prix. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast, and I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer and assistant producer Joe Spagnoli. Unpaid intern is currently MIA, but we'll let you know when we find him. Now, lads... We were in Monza over the weekend. We had an interesting time, a controversial time. It was certainly a race that's been discussed quite heavily in the days following. And I'm going to maybe start off the conversation with perhaps the most controversial part, which was the end. Can we discuss the end of the race? Can we discuss Daniel Ricciardo, engine failing on the track, getting picked up by a crane, the safety car, Charles Leclerc complaining, ending under a safety car and all of the discussion that has come with that because obviously a lot of people have said that this is how Abu Dhabi 2021 should have ended and they're not very happy about it essentially. But supposedly this is what was supposed to happen, right? So I'd love to get you guys' thoughts on do you think that what happened on Sunday was the right thing? Or do you think that there's anything that they could have done differently that would have made it more fair? And I'll start with you, Joe, because I personally feel like, yes, in a sense, it was the right thing. And it wasn't necessarily 
the most entertaining thing, but that's not really the point, is it? For as sceptical as I am of a lot of the Americanized and the entertainment-centric approach that people are taking towards Formula One and the idea of having a red flag for entertainment, there's no question that the end of the race would have been more pulse-pounding, more entertaining than the pretty boring Monza race that we had. However, the sporting regulations have to come first. The safety regulations have to come first. Ultimately, so you have any kind of competitive baseline in Formula One rather than these crazy endings to the race, which should always be the exception. It was very unusual to see people complaining simultaneously that this was what Abu Dhabi should have been, but also complaining that the end of this race was boring. They're kind of fundamentally contradictory arguments, I find. Yeah, I for as entertaining as it could have been, and honestly, I really don't think it would have been. I'm pretty confident that Max would have been able to hold on till the end. Everything suggested he had the pace. I can't take issue with the FIA. The only issue you can have is the safety car not picking up the right guys, a potential delay in the decision-making. But again, that's not the sporting regulations or the director. That's the stewarding at the Monza circuit, which was far from at its best all weekend. Overall, it was a pretty awful weekend for the FIA. And it all really kicked off on Saturday when no one could, no one knew what the grid was. And it involved journalists, drivers, teams becoming mathematicians. And to wait five hours was ridiculous for a grid, if I'm being honest. I mean, I got it straight away, but not even wait, not even the guy who started, who's supposed to start second. As for the race, there wasn't really much you can do with the regulations. This is these regulations were brought in to make things easier for the race director. They clearly don't work because where has this FIA control system been? That's supposed to be this F1 version of F- VAR. Where is it? Is it, it even been set up yet? There isn't really so much you can do. The only thing that I really also have personal dislike of is the fact there was a cradle on track because as we know what happened with, with Jules Bianchi and we also know what happened with in the Formula E race in Indiria when there was a cradle on the track, that was highly criticised. So there needs to be a change again to the procedures. I mean, what I would say is that because Monza is quite a difficult circuit in the fact that it's so rural, because you have a block, you have a, you know, the fact that it's made of, it's in a royal park, it might be wise to actually have two safety cars in the same, in the thing, the same way that Le Mans has two safety cars, where you have one safety car picking up the leader and then you have another safety car picking up the lap cars. And then you tell the lap cars, okay, floor it, get yourselves unlapped, get behind the lead cars, and then we can get one or two laps done. But evidently, you know, common sense tends to get binned in Formula One, and I don't suspect this idea will get implemented. It was definitely not the most interesting ending, but I completely agree. It's not about being interesting, is it? And the fact that so much emphasis has been put on the entertainment factor of these races since Liberty Media has come on board, I think is problematic. And it does put driver safety at risk, because at the end of the day, it's one of the most dangerous sports in existence so number one priority has to be safety at all times because we certainly can't go back to a time where you know drivers were dying left right and center so completely agree safety first as always but let's talk about something a little bit more positive and that would be Nick DeVries absolute masterclass in his F1 debut in a Williams obviously we hope that Alexander Albon gets better soon but what a start for Nick DeVries. I mean, fantastic qualifying from him. Benefited, obviously, from the fact that there were so many penalties and he jumped up the grid a little bit. But finishing his first ever F1 race in the points 
And it's not even, you know, it's not like he's been training for his first F1 race in that sense. He didn't know he was coming into F1. He stepped in at the last minute. And you can tell from the fact that at the end of the race, he physically could not pull himself out of his car that he was not physically ready to drive an F1 car. It's an absolutely fantastic performance from him. I am flabbergasted and I think he did a fantastic job. But Ed, how did you feel about it? Well, it's pretty. It's a pretty good achievement going from having coffee in the paddock club to scoring points on what was an impromptu F1 debut. I think the Freeze did very well. Bearing in mind, he did have an FP1 for Aston Martin during the weekend, and he also had ex- a little bit of experience with this car because he tested it in Spain. But yeah, fundamentally, it was a brilliant performance. He didn't put a foot wrong. He got everything right. He got the start right. He got the race right. Quali was a little bit tricky, but overall in all, he embarrassed a lot of drivers who have done nearly all the races here. I'm not going to say any names, of course. And Joe, have we seen any criticism of him anywhere? Is that anything that you've seen on social media? Because I personally have seen a couple of bits here and there, but I just, I I don't see how you can justify criticising the kid after a performance like that and coming in so last minute. Monza is one of the toughest tracks to physically prepare for and between Formula E and not having a regular senior open wheel drive in Formula 1 or similar series Nick de Vries was physically not ready as you can as you astutely pointed he was absolutely shattered after the race he probably struggled to be in position for Singapore in a couple of weeks but just unbelievable performance a lot of people are hedging his performance against circumstances so the Williams being great in a straight line it's not actually that brilliant in the field overall it's saddled with a Mercedes PU qualifying people saying you wasn't perfect both of his times in q1 were good enough for for the top 15 even the first runs which is more than can be said for latifi who apparently had his best ever grand prix at this track just 12 months ago and then there's the race where people said that the safety car basically bailed him out from guan yu zhou behind him he'd been doing just fine against guan yu zhou for about 20 odd laps he'd pulled out of drs from guan yu zhou without a toe in front of him when guan yu zhou had drs behind nick de Vries, who didn't he was still pulling away it's very difficult for me to justify any of these criticisms. He had a fantastic weekend. The weekend where Max Verstappen finally breaks his Italy curse and wins at this track, Nick de Vries was the more impressive Dutch driver. You couldn't make it up. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. But you mentioned Latifi, and let's talk about him as well. Let's bring him into the conversation, because obviously this performance has sparked lots of talk about Nick de Vries now replacing Latifi next year. And one of the main things that I have seen kind of in defense of the idea of Williams getting rid of Latifi, supposedly Williams don't need the money anymore. And I find that very hard to believe when you consider the fact that their title sponsor, Sophia, 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 however it is you pronounce it, is owned by Nick Latifi's dad. And that's rumored to be a £40 million title sponsorship. I find it very hard to believe that they would be absolutely fine if they lost their title sponsor. And I don't know if maybe it's just not that common a knowledge that Latifi's dad owns that company, but he does. And I can't see him sticking around if they boot his son out. It's Sophina, Shannon, just to be clear. But for the amount that this is being reported, that Williams don't have to concern themselves anymore, I'd be inclined to at least believe it part way. And okay, I know Williams are a bit lower down the pecking order, but every position in the Constructors' Championship matters. And all the evidence so far this season suggests that Nicholas Latifi is just not bringing in the performances that the team needs. He's now 21st in a 20-driver championship after one race where someone else was added to the grid. You know, obviously, as as you said, Shannon, he, his dad brings a lot of money with the companies they own. 
But you have to wonder if you want to progress as a as a team, you might need to upgrade your driver lineup. You have one very good driver in Alex Albon. If you had two, it might just put yourself up a notch. Bearing in mind, Aston Martin have still basically stuck with this car for another year. You might be able to get them if you can make improvements over the winter. Latifi's a nice guy. I don't have any problem with him. I think that he was okay in 2021, but he's run out of time. And this weekend, I think, is only starting to reignite the rumours that were lingering around the the Monaco time when there were rumours there was going to be a driver swap and Latifi was going to be the one ousted. So... I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one for Josh Capito and Duryton Capital, but Duryton Capital have money. It's not like the Claire Williams, Williams, which were struggling to make it from race to race. You know, Duryton have money, and if they can, you know, bail out, bail them, fill the hole left behind by the Latifis, it would make sense. So it's difficult, but it needs to be done. There needs to be a, an upgrade in the driver lineup. I do agree, but I will counter with never underestimate the power of money in this sport. Bear in mind that the only reason that Mazepin was ditched and booted out of his seat was because his country invaded Ukraine. Despite his horrendous performance, he was supposed to be driving for another year. So money talks in F1 perhaps more powerfully than mm, anything else. But we'll move on and we'll stop talking about Nicholas Satifi because for someone who's doing so horrendously, we do spend a lot of time talking about the man on this podcast. And let's have a little talk about Carlos Sainz because, Joe, I believe that he was your driver of the weekend. Possibly. I, I don't know if I'd say it definitively, but possibly. I think he was more impressive than Leclerc from beginning to end, which was very surprising for me. Throughout the whole weekend, it was pretty clear that Charles, at least in long run pace, did not have the, the pace in his Ferrari to match Max Verstappen. Looking at the times that Carlos Sainz was pulling, despite his crucial overtakes, he may well have been able to chase Max Verstappen if he had not had those penalties. In Q3, he managed to improve on the second runs without a toe. He was giving Leclerc the toe that ultimately ended up with Charles on pole position. Throughout the race, he was in the points by lap 10, I believe, which on a track where it's supposedly quite difficult to overtake, including a critical overtake on Sergio Perez. I mean, people were talking about Lewis's comeback through the field, and rightfully so. Very little attention by comparison given to Carlos Sainz, who yet again just like he did at Paul Ricard, overtook pretty easily at a track where apparently it's very difficult. That is a very good point. I do feel like he is undervalued sometimes and perhaps we don't see some of his greatest performances. Absolutely. But let's talk a little bit about Max because he's looking so painfully dominant right now. I just can't see anything stopping him at all. He's just flying around that track. I think he described his race as lonely. At the, when he was on team radio, after he crossed the checkered flag, he said to Christian Horner, that was a lonely race. And I guess previously that problem was almost exclusively reserved for Sir Lewis Hamilton. But now it's it's Max Verstappen. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, it's looking pretty ominous that the championship will be won by Max Verstappen. And really, there's nothing the opposition can do. The guy is winning from all sorts of positions on all sorts of tracks in a car that at the start of the year, wasn't the best and now is looking like a world beater and it's going to get even better with the fact that there's going to be a lightened chassis. There is no way that anyone can stop them. And it's only going to get worse in 2023 because we're going to go to the evolution of this from this year's cars to next year's cars. I think another two years of Verstappen domination are in place and 
when you've got people who openly aren't fans of him saying, boy, that boy can drive, you know you've kind of earned some respect. Max at the moment is driving like a man possessed. It almost reminds me a lot of Schumacher in 95 when he was coming off that rocky start. But once he really got motoring, he was unstoppable. So kudos to Max Verstappen. Kudos indeed, very much so. But not so kudos for Aston Martin, who had a lovely little double DNF over the weekend and saw neither of their drivers crossing the chequered flag. And what to make it even worse, poor Seb Vettel not having a good race. His last time that he will ever race Monza in a Formula One car. And it all went to shit. And I believe he was the first guy out. He was the first DNF of the race. How depressing. Joe, are you hopeful for that team for next year? Do you think that there is anything that they could possibly pull out of the bag for 2023 that could be worth watching? Or are they a bit of a lost cause? It depends on how much infrastructure they're able to build within the next six months and how effective Fernando Alonso is right off the bat at developing the car and the personnel around him. On recent form with Aston Martin, it's very hard to be optimistic, but this weekend I think maybe they deserve a little bit of slack for the fact that at least one of their retirements was reliability-driven, related to the Mercedes power unit, which, granted, it may just be a case of very high mileage on the few motor components that they've used, but that's a pretty rare occasion. Like a double DNF for Aston Martin, that is pretty rare for this year. But but you're right, Shannon, I don't see them powering through the midfield next year. I certainly don't see them becoming the new Alpine. And speaking of Alpine, it was a bit of a missed opportunity, wasn't it, Ed? Not the best of results for them this week. Well, considering that I thought they were could they I thought they were going to get a, pole, a podium because of the fact their their engine is extremely good with the power, in terms of power output, and also for the fact they've got two very good drivers. I was flabbergasted that Ocon and Alonso didn't get near the podium. They didn't look close to getting on the rostrum. And at a time when the battle fourth is still is still quite it's still quite tense between them and McLaren, you need to pick up pick up all the points you can. And although McLaren had Ricardo dropping out, Alpine didn't have a much better day. And yeah, I, I think this is probably the story of Alpine's season, I'm afraid. Missed opportunities. Indeed. And just to close out our little race review, I will say I was absolutely devastated at the start to see Lando Norris having such a problem uh, when the lights went out. I believe he had a problem with his anti-stall and he had to do a manual start, which is why he was so slow off the mark, which is rare for him because I feel like in general McLaren are very good at getting off the mark. Their starts are usually pretty consistent. But yeah, that was a shame for me. It made me sad. But moving on, it's time to do a little grid walk, gentlemen, because it's time for Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Hulkenback, again? Nico Hulkenberg is being linked to multiple teams right now, from Haas to Alfa Romeo, as word spreads that he could be making a more permanent comeback to F1 in the next year. And straight from the old man we love to hate, Helmut Marko is sparking retirement rumours for Max Verstappen, as he hurtles towards a second world title, Marco doesn't think Max Verstappen will be around to chase the record for the most championships, as he could quit, and I quote, sooner than we all think. His current Red Bull contract expires at the end of 2028. Could that be the last we see of young Max Verstappen? 
personally, I'll wait to hear it from the man himself. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, dear listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. Now, gentlemen, what do we think about the lovely, lovely Helmut Marco sparking retirement rumours for Max Verstappen? I know we're all big fans of Helmut Marco. Well, Helmut, you might have to wait. Some of your juniors are probably not going to be in Formula 1 anytime soon. So you might need to keep Max on side for another two or three years until, let's say, he breaks the records left behind by Schumacher and Hamilton. Because let's be honest, he's Red Bull's cheat code at the moment. And by losing him, it would be a massive shock for for Red Bull. And I'm not sure how they would recover, per se. I mean, if anyone ever starts sparking retirement rumours for Adrian Newey, I think we'll really all be in a panic. But Joe, how much weight do you put behind Helmut Marco's comments? I can't even keep a straight face when I'm saying that, because let's be honest, it's Helmut Marco. But what do you think? First rule of being someone's manager, agent, whatever, is to keep them in the news no matter what. And if Max Verstappen winning the Italian Grand Prix isn't enough, you can count on Helmut Marco to pour petrol on the fire of his attention. I mean, people are forgetting Max Verstappen has been in Formula One for quite a while already. He's had, if I'm thinking, yes, I'm counting this correctly, seven and a half full seasons. He's far from the youngest driver anymore. So yeah, it may come sooner than we think, but I can't imagine he'll be I can't imagine he'll be staring down retirement until at least the end of this current contract, which is understandably the longest in Formula One. And as far as Nico Hülkenberg, I mean, he's been Mr. Stand-in for a little while now. He certainly had a very active time when COVID was in its fiery throes. But do we actually think he's going to get a more permanent seat? Do we not need to be focusing on the future and young talent rather than consistently talking about bringing this man back? I mean, he's 35. How many more years does he actually have in his career anyway? It just seems counterproductive, don't you think, Ed? It's it's so difficult to say because as much as I like Nico Hülkenberg, I don't see what he's going to gain from it. Yes, the Haas is a good car, but he'll be forced to develop it. And by the time, let's say, the Haas becomes winnable, he'll be 37. And Gunther Steiner will probably be looking for another driver elsewhere. So I don't see what he's going to get out of it. I certainly don't see what Haas are going to get out of it, apart from maybe a cheap driver. But unfortunately, this is the this is because of the breakdown in the relationship between Gunther Steiner and Mick Schumacher. You know, bearing in mind as early as Monaco, Gunther was telling Mick to stop crashing on Sky Television. That put a lot of pressure on him. Even if you ask all the other pundits, they say Gump has been a bit too harsh on him. So I don't think it's a particularly amazing movie. It doesn't really awe inspire me. But the thought of having the man who literally once told, got told by Kevin Magnussen to quote unquote suck my balls, honey, as his teammate is, I think Netflix will be quite happy with that. Netflix would certainly have a good time pulling that footage out of the archive. I'm absolutely sure. But it's time to take a little journey into the past, chaps, because it's time for Looking Back with Ed. As Formula One looks to head back to Singapore for the first time in three years, I thought it was a good time to look back at what was an historical and controversial first race. It's the story of when Alonso and Renault hit the jackpot and then lost it. It's Singapore 2008. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. History would be made in Singapore as Formula One would host its first ever night race around the streets of the small but prosperous Asian country. Lewis Hamilton and Felipe Massa came into the first of a trio of Asian races, separated by a point, with Robert Kubica and Kimi Raikkonen still in the hunt, albeit some distance behind the Brits and the Brazilian. The top four locked out the first two rows of the grid, with Massa on pole from Hamilton, Raikkonen and Kubica, with Heike Kovalainen and Nick Heifel on row three ahead of Sebastian Vettel and Timo Glock. However, Fernando Alonso had a torrid session and would start 15th on the grid alongside Nelson Piquet Jr. Piquet Jr. then did something rather bizarre on the formation lap, losing the back end of his Renault approaching the final corner, forcing him into a 360 before lining up in his grid slot. At the jump, Massa got the best launch out of the championship contenders and easily held his lead out to turn one, with Hamilton holding second. Kubica and Kovalainen squabbled for position, and it was Heike who lost. On lap 12, Alonso, who had lost time behind the one-stopping Yano Trulli, made his first stop of the day. But just as it seemed, the Spaniard would have a long race ahead of him. And Renault's gamble looked to have paid off when Piquet crashed heavily and brought out the safety car, suddenly lurching Alonso back into contention. Although the pit lane was closed, Rosberg and Kubica were forced to pit due to a lack of fuel, earning both stop-go penalties. When the pits finally opened, all hell broke loose as Massa was given the green light to go, causing the Brazilians to drive down the pits with the rig still attached. Unbelievably, things deteriorated further. The fuel rig would not disconnect. He had dominated the race, and now he was last. Now it was Rosberg out in the lead from Trudy and Vizikella. But with the former's penalty hanging over him as well as the Latinos yet stopping, it meant Alonso now was the net race leader from Mark Webber and David Coulthard with Hamilton now into fourth and set to profit from his rival's misfortunes. When Rosberg finally served his stop-go, he rejoined in net race second after a slew of hot laps paid off, with Webber's once-promising race ending on lap 29 with engine problems. On lap 41, Alonso pitted for a second time and rejoined in front of Hamilton and Coulthard, as Rosberg tried to stretch out a gap before his second stop. Coulthard let Hamilton by on the run down to turn 7 as he came in for fresh rubber, but his race was ruined after a stuck fuel rig caused him to lurch forward before having to stop again, losing him crucial seconds. 
Truly, the race ended on lap 50 with a hydraulics issue, but just as Massa was approaching the turn 18 chicane, he lost the back end of his Ferrari, tapping the barrier, with the fast approaching Adrian Sutil unable to slow down in time to avoid the Ferrari, and subsequently slammed into the wall, ending his race. Ferrari's horrible night got worse when Raikkonen crashed out with four laps to go, extinguishing all hopes of a second world championship for the Finn. The crowd reached fever pitch as race leader Alonso took the final corners towards victory. Who would have predicted that on Saturday night? Fernando won again for the 20th time in his career with Rosberg second and Hamilton third. Unbelievably, it was Renault's first win since Japan 2006, but at least Piquet played a part in it. Glock salvaged a good result for Toyota with fourth head of Vettel, Heifelt, Coulthard and Nakajima, with Massa limping home a dejected 13th. Singapore would be the turning point in the 2008 championship, as Hamilton never relinquished the championship lead and dramatically won his maiden title in Brazil after passing Glock at the last corner of the last lap. The 2008 Singapore Grand Prix would later be mired in controversies and now disposed PK Jr. revealed to the FIA that Renault bosses Flavio Briatore and Pat Simmons had told PK Jr. to crash in order to help Alonso win the race. Crashgate saw Briatore receive a lifetime ban and Simmons pick up a five-year ban, although these would later be annulled, whilst PK would never race in F1 again and the results remained unchanged. I mean, as far as F1 races go, that has got to be one of the most controversial in history. And also, lots and lots and lots of crashing, which I know is quite common. But what I want to know from you guys is who you think is going to crash out at this year's Singapore Grand Prix. And I'm going to start with you, Joe. Who do you think's going into the wall? Oh, it's so hard not to be mean and pile on somebody. Nicholas Latifi, fine. One of the rookies who's never visited Marina Bay before. So, Latifi, Schumacher, Sanojo, I'm watching. Keep it out of the walls, kids. I mean, you can say that, but I don't think they're gonna. I also think that Kevin Magnussen could be one that ends up in the wall. He doesn't seem to be able to get through the first few laps of a race recently, really, without dinging something, be it at his own fault or someone else's. He's having a lot of problems keeping the bodywork intact. But, and, sorry, carry on. And he's in really bad form at the moment as well, post-summer break. Zandvoort was the worst by a mile, but he's been pretty poor at all three Grand Prix weekends. He has been, and it all started so well, which just makes me sad. But, gentlemen, it is time for news of the week. So, I'm going to kick us off with some news that did make me very, very sad initially, and that is the news that Alex Albon is recovering from respiratory failure after his appendicitis surgery in what is an uncommon but known side effect. He did have to spend a night in intensive care after his appendectomy, and I'm glad he's better, and I'm glad he'll be getting out of hospital soon. But nonetheless, it is worrying, and it does raise the question as to whether he'll be fit enough to race for Singapore, because as we know, it's one of the most physically demanding tracks on the on the calendar this year and from my own experience having a laparoscopic appendectomy when I was about 18 or 19 it does leave you in a bit of a state for a little while obviously they have to cut through you know the muscle when they stick all the little instruments in you and that muscle then has to repair I can't see him being racing fit even in in three weeks I don't think it's humanly possible it would have been optimistic for him to be 
fit and recovered if the operation had gone well. But the respiratory failure probably doubles the recovery time. I've seen anywhere between four and six weeks, more likely six. But even a regular appendectomy has a recovery period of somewhere in the region of two weeks. You wouldn't want to risk Singapore even on that time frame. So I suspect that someone will be replacing him. I'm just hoping it's Nick DeVries. I think he deserves the chance more than Logan Sargent does. I also would hope that we will see Nick continuing his good form and continuing to get that opportunity. If they do have intentions of replacing the Tifi with him, it would make sense for them to keep him on subbing for Alex Albon just to see what he's capable of. But what do you think, Ed? Well, technically, they could do a double switch. If Albon's not fit and if the Tifi is slightly underwhelming in terms of performance, F2 is not on that weekend. If if Logan's got enough super license points, why not run him? There's no shame in not in having two ex- two rookie drivers in your car for Singapore. You might as well give it a shot. And as I agree with both of you, I don't think Alex will be ready. I'm not sure he'll be ready in time for Suzuka, even which is a week afterwards. So I think the next time we'll see him will maybe maybe Kota. But best wishes to Alex Albon during this time. He was having a good run of form in the run up to Monza, and it was a shame that he couldn't add to his current point tally. Indeed, I couldn't agree more. And that's the problem with appendicitis is it just pops up out of nowhere and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it because if you ignore it, your appendix explodes and that can be life-threatening. So good times. But Joe, what is your news of the week? Yeah, this is probably the big one in terms of the future of Formula One. So the Red Bull and Porsche deal, which has been in negotiations and talks for presumably a very long time and has been reported for at least six months, that is now off. It is not going to happen. There will not be a Red Bull Porsche programme by F1's new regulations in 2026. Porsche are either left without a team or at the moment without an engine programme. The theory is that potentially they could partner up with the Andretti team, which all of a sudden makes their F1 entry look a lot more appealing. But at the moment, it's a little bit embarrassing for the FIA having pitched these regulations so aggressively to the Volkswagen group for one of their biggest teams to all of a sudden not want to get in. I suspect if a deal can't be reached with a Red Bull supplier, the FIA will be on their hands and knees to get Honda back into F1. It's certainly a very interesting turn of events, isn't it? I, To be honest, I thought that that was all signed, sealed, delivered and done. I was quite surprised to see it fall through. But yeah, maybe we will see a return of Honda and it feels like Red Bull's having a bit of a yo-yo right now. It does seem to me like this is another case of the full storm with manufacturers coming in. Bearing in mind, the first time, the reason why we had turbo hybrids come in was that we were going to have this utopia of manufacturers joining in, like Bugatti, Honda, Audi. All, all, all of them were supposed to join in to much fanfare. We only got one, and they supposedly left at the end of last year. Well, they're not, because what is in that car is a, is a Honda engine. So I'm sensing that we're going to have a repeat of the same engine problems that we had at the start of the turbo hybrid era. Now, technically, Porsche should, I think, get their hands involved in another team or potentially Andretti. But why not just start your own, call it Porsche Team Jost F1, and just do it? You know, what? what's the harm? F1 constantly bangs on about how it wants, you know, a new team. Why not give them an excuse? Indeed, indeed. And Mr. Spencer, what is your news of the week? So, as we all know, Alpine have been in a bit of a driver kerfuffle recently. One minute they're supposed to re-sign Daniel Ricciardo, next minute they're going to sign Pierre Gasly, next minute they're going to sign Mick Schumacher. Well, now it's gone all the way to Nick de Vries. Nick de Vries will be testing for the team 
at the Hungaro ring in an old car. But there's another interesting choice in that who will be in the other car, Colton Herter. Now, from what I understand from the race itself, the race publication, is that he's been put in by Alpine for Red Bull in order for Red Bull to evaluate him. And this will be all part of the push to Colton, the super license points he needs. And of course, this has major ramifications for Alpine because Alpine will room to be getting Pierre Gasly, who would then be who would be out of his contract at AlphaTauri. So it, there is a definite co- co-partnership at the moment. We have to see how Colton and Nick get on and whether Nick will end up going to Alpine because he might decide to take the, the simpler route and go to Williams. It's all kicking off. Silly season just seems to be extra silly this year. And I really can't tell which direction it's going. I really can't. But I can tell you which direction we're going right now. And that is going to be looking at classic teams of F1 law with Joe Spagnoli. We're still high from the Italian Grand Prix. And Joe's not quite ready to leave the country behind for Singapore. Never mind national pride. This week's classic team was practically local for him. And this is the story of how Palmer's own Delara got their feet wet in Formula One. He definitely wrote this with a smile on his face. But be honest, was Joe ever going to be mean about a team called Scuderia Italia? Giuseppe Lucchini's BMS Scuderia Italia may have had something of a rushed entry to Formula One, but they certainly committed to the sentiments of their name. Not only would the Brescia-based outfit field Italian Alex Caffey in their loan car for 1988, but when it became clear that the small team couldn't build their own car, they enlisted one of the peninsula's most impressive race car builders, the now legendary Dallara. Making the car long, he actually achieved the right weight distribution, and that's why the car was had good handling, was sort of easy to drive. If any Formula One car is easy to drive, but it was it was comfortable for the driver to go fast. Despite customer Ford power, which admittedly wasn't very Italian, the dark red car almost always made it out of pre-qualifying, and between impressive reliability and Caffey's own consistency, Scuderia Italia finished their debut year ahead of many Grand Prix staples, from Ligier and Osella to the full-works Zack Speed outfit. Such a promising start enabled the team to run two cars thereafter, and 1989 would soon bear fruit. Caffey converted his potential with the team's first points in Monaco, while experienced compatriot Andrea de Cesaris brought his Dallara 189 to its first ever podium in Canada. A really superb achievement by this veteran, de Cesaris third, Piquet fourth, Arnoux in fifth position, sixth place, Alex Caffey. These successes were enough for eighth in the constructors' standings, a minor miracle considering Scuderia Italia's resources. However, 1990 was a backward step. Not long after losing manager Patrizio Cantu, Caffey was gone too, as would be de Cesaris after an underwhelming, pointless season. New driver Emanuele Pirro hadn't hit the ground running, but in truth, the 1990 car's reliability was the real kicker, with only six finishes that didn't end in disqualification. A new designer and Judd engines were in place for 91, though, and Scuderia Italia were back challenging in mere weeks. More than just challenging, actually, as their latest catch, Finnish driver JJ Leto, would even score another unlikely podium for the team on home soil at Imola. And it's not going to be long now before the swooping JJ Leto in the scarlet and white Dallara goes past Roberto Moreno, 25-year-old JJ Leto from Espoo in Finland. There he goes. 
It looked like things could get even better going into 92, with Piero gone for seasoned overachiever Pierluigi Martini, and the team finally having Italian horsepower from the prancing stallions of Ferrari. A slender points haul should have been a good platform for 93, but behind the scenes Scuderia Italia were about to become bystanders of some typical Italian bickering. friend from karting, Andrea De Cesaris, was the driver, so... It was another world. It was a very small team, full of uh, beautiful people, beautiful people, just a nice atmosphere. So if you want to put somebody in an environment where it's uh, comfortable and only thinks about driving fast, that was the team. First year was difficult because the car wasn't really good, so we went into pre-qualifying. The second year they kept me, uh, Andrea left and uh, JJ came. Friction between Ferrari and constructors Dallara forced the team to side with the former, and all of a sudden, the cars were being built by Lola Cars of Britain, whose work, put politely, wasn't up to Dallara's high standard. A necessary lineup change didn't help either, and after a year of no points, Giuseppe Lucchini was done with F1. Some of the effort would go to Minardi for the following year, propelling them to points in something of an Italian alliance, but the rest of the team would return to Scuderia Italia's previous frontier contact sport of touring car racing. I have to say, Joe, one of the first things that came to my mind when listening to your segment this week was, wow, look at all these names that I would have butchered if I was reading it, because I just had flashbacks to Ligier and the absolute gaff that that was. Another thing that I'll say about your segment this week is, oh my God, you actually chose a team that did okay and wasn't just a glorified tractor and car crash. I mean, well done. It's pretty rare that I'm positive about a team. Going back through the last few entries, I was far more positive about Scuderia Italia than I was about British American Racing, who came far closer to winning a race. Oh, I wonder why. I wonder why. Yeah, Scuderia Italia versus British American. Yes, gee, I wonder. But no, they were really good considering the resources that they had. And I was so miffed when I was watching resources and races to try and get audio for that clip when Murray Walker just didn't care about Scuderia Italia finishing on the podium. The team that were finishing like eighth or ninth in the championship, getting their first ever podium in F1, no, didn't care. Here's more footage of Martin Brundle battling for sixth place. British biased corporation much? I will say, though, I do think the BMS Scuderia Italia was underrated. I agree with you. They were a very good little plucky outfit. Yeah, okay, 93 was a bit of a damp squib in the fact that the car was ugly, it was big, it was chunky, it was slow. They had a good driver lineup, which was wasted. But they were a very solid outfit, and I do wish they would come back to Formula 1 and come back maybe as a Ferrari junior team, perhaps, or maybe even, I know it sounds extremely rude to suggest an Italian team partners up with a French engine manufacturer, but maybe Alpine. I mean, they already build Haas's car right now, Haas's chassis and a lot of their components. And the issue, of course, Ed, was that it wasn't that they had a bad season in 93, it's that they became British. And as we all know, that's a massive problem. But I had a little comment to finish off this discussion. Without wishing to get overly political, the Italian elections are going to be taking place over the next couple of months. And I'm slightly worried about the uh, Democratic parties, but the, the odds that they're probably going to lose power. And I'm thinking as a centre-left policy... Dallara, their products are used all over the world, right? They make F2 cars, F3 cars, IndyCar, they are everywhere. They're probably the like, one of the biggest exporters of race cars to foreign bodies and, and organizations in the world. Why has no one considered nationalizing them? 
I know that people can consent on nationalising water, gas and stuff. No, nationalise your proudest car builder. That will guarantee at least 50,000 extra votes for PD come the elections. I could vote for that. Done. Next. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's nice to know that you're writing policy for them, Joe. I wish you luck in your career in Italian politics. I'm sure you'll do extremely well. But it is time for everyone's favourite part of the podcast. And we're running a a little bit light on the ground this week. So hopefully, hopefully we can get a winner. But perhaps not. There's just three of us this week. Who is your plonker of the week? I'm coming to you first, Ed Spencer. It's our catering company. It's not the public transport system, although that was incredibly woeful this weekend. I would say the award goes to the FIA. Guys, you're supposed to be running the show. How has two journalists got the grid right before you? And these new safety carols, they're not actually as good as, you know, I remember them being put out. So, sorry guys, bit of a shit show this weekend. Must do better. Fair enough, fair enough. Mr. Spagnoli, plonker of the week. This is a really difficult position for me on two fronts. Partly because I've criticised Ed Spencer for not hammering on a particular driver or team member throughout the entire season. And two, because this is against a venue that means a lot to me. My plonker of the week is honestly Monza in general. The organisation was dreadful. This is the venue that's hosted more races than any other in F1 history. That's unacceptable. The F3 title race was was cut several laps short and the race wasn't restarted. The F1 race obviously had ended in those controversial, quote-unquote controversial, but also disorganised circumstances. The reports of fan harassment and intimidation all across the venue, which I'm sorry, have not been reported anywhere near enough. And the myriad of logistical and organisational issues pertaining to qualifying that Ed's already mentioned. I'm sorry I can't give you a singular. I was pretty damn appalled by Monza in general this weekend. And it does not look good for that track's viability going into the future. And we all know that everyone is up for the chopping block potentially at this point. It's no track is safe, truly. So it does look very, very bad. And to be honest, it's something that I'm going to have to agree with you on. Because I did see a lot of reports of fan harassment and it not being dealt with in the slightest over the weekend, which is completely unacceptable. So my plonker of the week is, it's kind of a mixture between the two, to be honest. It's everyone. It's the guys running the track. It's the FIA. It's the stewards. It just all came across to me like a bit of a shit show. And it looked like a bit of a circus, like no one was prepared, like they're not used to hosting Formula One races, like they don't know exactly what to expect. They just seemed wildly underprepared and there was little to no action. It just, it was a mess. It was truly a mess. So I think we can all agree on the fact that the plonker of the week this week is everyone running Monza, essentially. Everything. E- everything Literally about everything it. and everyone. The best consensus we've ever had for Plonker of the Week is where we don't pick a single person, we pick everybody involved with the running of an entire Grand Prix weekend. Exactly, exactly. And that's Plonker of the Week. You will tear the crown up into tiny little pieces and everybody gets one, but you're all Plonkers of the Week. If you're listening, you did a bad job and the race directors aren't happy. So there you go. But... On that note, that is all we have time for this week, chap. So I'd like to thank you for coming along to chat about Monza. 
If you, the dear listeners, would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do at race underscore directors, or you can like us on Facebook at the Race Directors Podcast, where we'll be posting some updates, some thoughts, some memes as we deal with the wait until Singapore. And we will see you again post-race for more absolute shenanigans. And we will have, of course, unpaid intern and producer Royfield back with us. But in the meantime, say goodnight, gents. Arrivederci. Has anyone seen intern? I need to shout at him. He's missing. He's about to get fired from his internship. There you go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.